Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have another returning guest with us, Brock Pierce. Brock, welcome to the podcast. Trace, great to uh, be back again. Yeah, so you're a managing partner at Blockchain Capital. You guys just did this uh, VCToken.com where you raised $10 million, but it's on the blockchain. Like Maybe you could help explain a little bit about like what you've done, why you did it, and what you know some of your plans are going forward. Yeah, well, so what we did is we launched the first ever ICO of a, of a venture fund. The idea being that we would raise money from a broader source of partners. Well, so the first thing we did is we decided to raise $10 million in the form of an ICO, and that happened, and it was very successful. We sold out in the first uh, six hours, and it probably would have been a lot faster if we hadn't encountered some uh, technical difficulties. So it was a success. Now, now the reasons why we did it. For one, historically, the venture capital industry is one that has been you know, kind of solely or exclusively available to the, call it the financial elite, the pensions, endowments, and big family offices and the likes. And so crowdfunding is something that I've followed very closely and been very interested in. I think I run the largest personal syndicate in Southern California on AngelList. My firm runs a syndicate there. We've syndicated you know, over a dozen deals at this point. And so I'm a big fan of the crowdfunding sort of phenomenon and everything that's been happening in the U.S. around the Jobs Act, because at its core, what it's doing is it's democratizing venture capital and it's making you know it available to a broader um, group of prospective investors. So in the same way that crowdfunding was the first major leap in the democratization of venture, I think what we just did is the next even larger leap of, of truly democratizing the world of venture capital. And so, you know, as a VC, you know, we're an industry that has benefited greatly from technology and the internet, but as an industry, we invest in disruption and innovation, but, you know, how have venture capitalists innovated in their own business? They generally don't. So, you know, it's an exciting thing, you know, and I, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur first and foremost. So when I look at these, you know, situations, my view is probably a little different than most VCs or most incumbents. Most incumbents are figuring out how to protect their business you know, from, you know, innovation and disruption where, you know, my nature is more lean into it. You know, someone else will come along and do it if it's a good idea and they'll come, they'll they'll disrupt me or my business. So I might as well be the one to do it to myself. My partner, Bart Stevens, was uh, at E-Trade in the 90s and, you know, E-Trade was putting all of the traditional brokerage businesses, you know, putting their backs against the wall. And uh, so Bart was reporting to the CEO running Corp Dev and BizDev. And there was another business at the time called Charles Schwab. Charles Schwab being a traditional uh, brokerage business. And, you know, when confronted with the innovators dilemma, they made the decision to go compete with E-Trade and cannibalize their entire existing business. And in the process, they built a business that's still successful today, whereas most of the other sort of brokerage businesses were you know, completely disrupted and disintermediated by low cost you know, brokerage providers. So that's um, 
one part of why we did it. The other is our first two funds only invested in startups. They did not invest in in ICOs, though uh, I've been very active in the ICO market since the beginning. I'm a founding board member of MasterCoin, which uh, was the first ICO and uh, you know where the model was kind of architected. And so I've been in the ICO market you know, all of this time as an individual investor, but not as um, not as a fiduciary or, or as part of my fund. Our, our second fund was prohibited from investing in tokens. And that's because some of our large LPs already had big Bitcoin positions. And I think they were hoping to, uh, you know, they didn't want us buying Bitcoin and collecting fees on, you know, Bitcoin gains, which is, was understandable. But uh, that prevented us from participating in some of the things we would have liked to. In our third fund, um, we are going to be investing in a combination of startups and in some cases, ICOs. And so, you know, if we're going to be investing in that space, you might as well be practicing what you preach as well. Um, I also have an issue with a lot of the ICOs to date. Uh, And again, you have to look at each of them, you know, on a case by case basis because they're all different. They all have different, you know, use cases and what their token uses are. And, you know, every single one of them is different. So, you know, I think in a lot of cases, some of them look like securities. And so I think that what people have been doing is they've been going through great lengths to create these very in some cases, convoluted models for the purposes of circumventing securities law. And, you know, everyone's kind of following what the last person did. So, you know, at MasterCoin, we did this foundation structure and, you know, kind of everyone copied that. Eventually, Ethereum copied that and Ethereum did it in Switzerland and spent, you know, real money on legal to to get the structure right. And everybody just kind of copies that and not necessarily doing the work to, uh, to validate whether it's appropriate for their business. So instead of trying to circumvent securities law, the question we asked ourselves for the last year and and the work that we did was, you know, can this be done in a compliant way, acknowledging that you're a security? And what we determined was that you can. And so I think for a lot of these ICOs, the the structure and path that we use might be right for them. And, uh, you know, I would advise, you know, anyone working on an upcoming ICO to, to look closely at our model and fork it, copy it, use it if it's appropriate for your uh, specific business. And the reason, you know, I want that done is I want to be able to invest in more of these uh, ICOs. And I'd like to invest in ones that are compliant in all cases, if possible. We were the first ICO to do KYC. We're the first one to acknowledge we're a security. We did this out of Singapore. We utilized regulation S and D exemptions within the SEC. We had a real 75 page, you know, offering memorandum prospectus. I mean, things that you don't you know, a lot of stuff that no one had ever done before, which is the reason why we limited it to uh, to $10 million as well. I mean, the, there was clearly demand far, far greater than, than $10 million, But our goal was not to raise as much money as possible. It was to break a bunch of ground and launch this experiment and, and see how it goes. I think, you know, Ethereum would have been better served if the Dow, you know, had done something similar. <laughs> right. I don't think we need to talk too much about the DAO. Now, when we're when we're looking at the legal structure with this, now these tokens they're going to be are they freely transferable? Does because that kind of opens up a secondary right. And when we're talking about ICO, you this is initial coin offering. So, like we're talking about a token that represents like an ownership interest or or what traditionally would be shares, right, in in the fund. Yeah, that's that's essentially what it is. So in Singapore, uh, well, Singapore and Switzerland are the two jurisdictions that have offered guidance on the issuance of like virtual currencies, tokens, digital currencies, and such. Uh, Singapore in 2014, the MAS gave guidance that it's not a security. So uh, the entity that issued the token is Singaporean, and uh, under 
Singaporean law and guidance, uh, it's not a security, but knowing that the U.S. might perceive it differently, we utilized uh, Regulation S and D, S for the international investors and D for the domestic investors, treating ourselves as if we are a security. So that's a little interesting that you, know, you have those two sort of things working differently. But um, yeah, the secondary market. So U.S. investors, one of the, the one of the things that we have to do to be compliant is KYC every investor. And I think that that's probably something that every ICO should be doing. You know, historically, people are like, well, if you KYC, then, you know, no one's going to want to invest. I said, I don't agree with that. I said that, you know, theoretically, maybe some if you were going to have 10 million of demand, maybe it becomes 9 million, maybe 10 percent of your prospective you know, investor base doesn't want to invest because of the KYC. I said, I'm I'm skeptical. And I, I said, I, I'd even go so far as to make the argument that I think that by doing KYC, you're going to raise more money. Maybe not for the first couple of people like I've just done, because you know it's something new that you know some people might not want to do. But what happens is financial markets don't like uncertainty. And by making the market more compliant, you're going to increase the overall demand uh, and you're going to bring in investors that might not invest in the space otherwise. So I think that the net result is going to be that by doing KYC, there will be more money available to ICOs over time, maybe not with the first few, but that clearly wasn't a problem for us. We had more than enough demand. Anyone that didn't like the fact that we did KYC, you know, it didn't prevent us from being successful. So I think that that's probably going to be true of many others. And I would advise, I think, every ICO, no matter what your structure is at this point, to probably be doing KYC because uh, you can avoid the highest risk elements in doing that. You know, in a lot of cases, you probably don't want to take any money from the U.S. just because that's where most of your liability you know, stems from. And if you do KYC, you can block all U.S. investors. And that's probably if I were going to give blanket advice to everyone, I block every American. <laughs> I, I didn't do that because I want to show people there are still things that you can do to allow U.S. participation. Uh, but in our case, we can only work with accredited U.S. investors and we were limited to 99 and those U.S. investors have a one year lockup. And those are you know, a variety of rules that we have to operate within to be compliant. Now, yeah, these tokens will will trade in the secondary market, which is one of the other big problems with venture capital. You know, venture capital as an asset class has delivered great returns historically, but um, you know, people don't want their money locked up for five to 10 years. And so by allowing that, you know, call it interest in the fund, that share in this case in a closed end fund to trade freely, you know, in secondary markets, you now have brought liquidity to what has historically been an illiquid asset class. And I think that that's a pretty compelling thing that I think will probably end up being the model that all venture funds will take at some point in the future. And I think private equity funds, real estate type vehicles, anything where there's a, a general lack of liquidity, markets love liquidity. And when given an option to take a liquid product versus an illiquid product under the same terms, I think people will take the liquid product every day of the week. And so I think that that's an interesting you know, thing as well. But you know, this is an experiment. We're the first in the world to do this. So we'll, we'll see how it goes over the next few months. And if all goes well, it's very possible that I won't have a fund five. I'm, you know, my, uh, and it's very possible that, in, you know, six, 12, 18 months, we may do this again. And that vehicle will become the future of everything my firm does. And we would no longer even have a traditional GP or LP structure at all. Very interesting. Uh, just kind of from the technical standpoint, you do this KYC. So when the investors get their token, how does the secondary actually work? Like, are those transfers like 
investor A to investor B of the tokens, like it has to go to another KYC investor who's already been approved by the fund, but like the actual transfer doesn't necessarily have to be approved. I mean, maybe you could go a little bit into that. Well, it's an ERC-20 token. So, I mean, it's designed to work within, you know, the Ethereum sort of ecosystem and Ethereum wallets and exchanges and be pretty easy to, to plug in. But no, it should trade on crypto exchanges. Oh, wow. Now, so you'll be able to, so so people can become investors without yeah, having so gone the, through the, 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 BCAP the initial token, KYC. The, the BCAP token should be able to trade on Kraken, for example. Wow. So then somebody could end up being a holder of the BCAP token without having blockchain capital done the KYC on them? Yeah. So the, the way that it works is around the issuance and then ultimately the redemption. We, we are at the time of issue, just like with a company, we're responsible for whoever receives it. Now, if you, in, you, know, if you were someone in Europe, for example, and you had invested in, in our fund, and you wanted to go sell that position, that fund to someone else. I mean, that's been being done, you know, in secondary markets long before there was crypto. You know, by using this type of technology, uh, it makes it really efficient and easy. And then there's going to be marketplaces that, you know, allow to allow you to very easily connect, you know, buyers with sellers. And so you should end up with a, you know, uh, uh, a fairly liquid market. And you know, we'll be publishing our NAV every quarter, and we'll see how it trades against the NAV. You know, under the scenario where we have a larger pool of capital that is part of a traditional fund structure. Um, it probably won't trade at much of a discount to NAV because if it did, you know, I'll just buy all the tokens, right? Yeah. Um, so it, much of the same with public companies. You know, we look a lot like a closed-end fund, you know, a public sort of company where if the company has a ton of cash on its balance sheet and the stock looks cheap, it may buy back shares, right? You know, and if it tra- trades at a huge premium and we get comfortable with the structure, you know, we, this when we might, you know, create the... You know, the next one, but I, I think we want to see how this all goes first, and you know, we're going to spend some time. The goal here was not to to go big, but to you know to to learn. Yeah, break some initial ground. So I'm still and, gonna... and, and show people. You know, there are other ways to do things. I, I mean, I really, um, you know, I've got concerns for a lot of these these ICOs. Regulators don't like say, oh, you just raised ten million dollars and you have someone knocking on your door. It's when your when your when your ICO and project fails and you lose ten million dollars and your coin goes down to nothing or something very low and you have a bunch of disgruntled investors, some of whom may have been non-accredited U.S. investors that were advertised through and you know broken general solicitation laws and all sorts of stuff. They come after you when your business fails two years from now, and that's the the issue that a lot of these ICOs have is they've got regulatory overhang, uh, and I'm not sure investors are adequately assessing that risk. Right. Uh, If founders get into that kind of trouble, that's probably going to have a negative impact on the project as well. I mean, as as a VC, I don't invest in ideas. I mean, to a degree that's there may be some degree of what I mean, to some degree we do, but we invest in people. We're investing in entrepreneurs first and foremost. I mean, that's that's the big bet that we make every time as we say this, this team, are they capable of executing on this good idea? But it's the team first every single time. And if the team encounters major problems, that's normally going to have a big problem. It's going to create a big problem for a project. Yeah, I actually interviewed Bart, and we we went thoroughly in depth into like what you guys and VCs in general are looking for, like in a team to invest. So anybody listening, like trying to raise money, hey, go back and listen to that. I, I am kind of curious. So we're interacting with the old legal system. Like, where is the like the actual share registry kept? Like, is are are these BCAP tokens? Are they proxies for shares or 
are you actually innovating where like that's where you're keeping the share registry or trying to do something like that? Because, you know, using the public company analogy, we've got Seed & Co. And so all the shares are actually titled like in Seed & Co.'s name, but then they can trade like in street name, right? So I'm just kind of curious. Yes, like, stru Structurally, it's, it's, it's a little similar to that. So it's a closed-end fund structure out of Singapore that is administered or run by Argon, which is our, call it, the best description of Argon in a traditional financial sense would be, you know, like an investment bank. They would be call it the Goldman Sachs of this emerging new sort of crypto world that, you know, manages the book building, you know, the legal, the offering memorandums, things of that nature. And um, uh, yeah, so it's a what looks like a closed end fund structure and it's administered by uh, the bank that is, you know, in a way providing you a proxy interest. But it's one that's pretty solid. I mean, it's not like most of these tokens where you're, if, if you read the T's and C's. It says that you as the investor are entitled to nothing. You own nothing. You have no rights. I mean, if, if you read the T's and C's of a lot of these ICOs, it's like, why are you investing? <laughs> well. and, and that's and that's one of the one of the other big risks with a lot of these as well is in some cases, you know, the, these companies that are doing the ICOs also have an actual operating business, right? And they're raising money from people like me for their operating company, and then they're raising money from the public in the form of these tokens or use coins. But in their T's and C's, it says the token holders are entitled to nothing. So what happens if the company gets sold? You know, all the intellectual property normally resides in the corporate entity. They have other investors and a board of directors where they've got fiduciary responsibilities to the actual shareholders, not the token holders. You know, I think what's going to happen here is token holders are going to get left holding a lot of bags as you know, projects fall apart and, you know, exits happen and, you know, uh, this failed company that, you know, built this really cool decentralized tech and X, Y, and Z might get sold for $20 million and the team moves on, project kind of fades away over time. And again, yeah, the token holders got nothing. Well, and we, we entitled all, in most cases to anything. We, we all saw the social network, right? Like, <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, it's going to be the people who are legitimately on that share registry, you know, who, who own those shares. Those are the ones who are legally entitled to stuff and gets kind of interesting if there's a conflict in fiduciary duty kind of like you were talking about between well that's this is the stuff i've spent a lot of time thinking about when looking at these icos and you know i mean i i want to throw up a lot of the times and i get why people are doing it they're doing it to not run afoul of securities law uh, and investors are comfortable with this you know big leap of faith that they're making so that the company is not violating securities law but at the end of the day you still have to care about what your contractual rights are what are you entitled to and, and not be relying solely on the idea that, you know, the founders are going to, you know, make it right when they have no obligation to. You signed up for a deal where you have no rights and, you know, well, incentives and things can change over time. And the big thing is that conflict of interest when you have an actual cap table of an actual, you know, incorporated entity and where you've got fiduciary obligations where at some point, they, even if they don't want to, they have to screw the token holder because they have an, an obligation to a shareholder. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, whew, and that's really why we have securities laws in the first place, right? Because people have been raising money from other people forever on like hopes and dreams and blue sky. And some of those people have just been running off and stealing the money or uh, otherwise like. Or changing the terms of the, the agreement the to steal your equity. And yeah, these things are all there to protect and, you know, and, and in all cases, protect sophisticated investors and accredited investors. I mean, um, uh, yeah, I mean, this stuff does, you know, uh, have a historical purpose that, you know, in almost all instances was designed for with good intention. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. Our awesome audio editor needs to eat. 
He makes your experience better by increasing the sound quality and decreasing the show's time by editing out unnecessary ums, ahs, pauses, and such. With only a few seconds of your time, you can support the show. Do you ever buy stuff on Amazon? Before you do, simply visit bitcoin.kn forward slash resources. You can get there from the homepage and click on one of the links. It takes you to Amazon. Then, at no additional cost to you, we get a tiny percentage of anything you purchase, even if it's not that particular item. These resources, they're all my favorite hacks that have increased my quality of life, so you might learn something helpful. They range from healthy snacks to sleep optimization, meditation tools, cognitive enhancers, immune system boosters, and much more. Maybe you'll find them useful. Either way, any support is greatly appreciated. Thanks, and now back to the show. Switching gears... So you guys have gone through the process on Ethereum, uh, written a type of smart contract, I assume. Is is this smart contract going, from what I understand, it's going to be able to be just kind of become a template and be used by lots of other people who want to do a similar type of project, right? Oh, that yeah. way, everybody doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, I mean, that's so, uh, uh, we're not going to directly profit, you know, as in blockchain capital from this. But yeah, I'd like to see, you know, my vision is that you're going to have Two types of ICOs. You're going to have these protocol ICOs with, you know, uh, use coins like Ethereum, and then you have other projects where it looks more like you're saying, "Hey, we're building some cool technology," and and essentially the the token is kind of meant to be a security. It's like you're an angel investor, not and and instead of people trying to create uses for a token, just sell them digital stock, right? Uh, more along the lines of what we just did, and I think that that's the future. And I think it's going to actually be the death or the end of late stage venture capital or growth equity. I mean, what the blockchain is doing here is it's lowering the bar, you know, for companies to, in essence, go public, right? Normally, you know, a company wouldn't go public until it's very mature because it's very expensive, costly. It requires a lot of work to administer. You know, sometimes people do these reverse mergers and you'll see small cap public companies. And those would be the probably the best things to look at. But that's a whole, you know, got its own host of issues that, you know, some people are OK with and some people are not. In terms of the management team and investors, um, you know, it provides for liquidity and often trades at a big premium to what a, a VC would pay for the same company if it had been private. And I think that that's a liquidity premium that, you know, is actually quite valuable and hence the reason why a lot of these ICOs trade at the levels that they do. But I think instead of, you know, companies going out and raising a Series C or even a Series B financing, um, I think you're going to see a lot of non-blockchain companies over the few next, you know, call it five years. I think the next one or two years is going to be mostly endemic, you know, sort of industry blockchain centric stuff or stuff where on a Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap of the types of people. So, you know, there's a lot of video game people in crypto. So video game projects may have some potential earlier on, you know, really in interesting and advanced technologies, you know, also as well, because, you know, most of the people in crypto are, you know, technology people. So I think that that kind of would be next. But I can envision five years from now, you know, any Silicon Valley, you know, sort of company that's going out to raise the Series B or Series C will be looking at this as an alternative and say, why would I take money from Andreessen Horowitz, you know, when I can do an ICO and take money from my customers? Again, the same promise that crowdfunding has been being, you know, has provided. And so I think this is going to be extremely disruptive. I think there will still be a role for, you know, people like me, at least for a little while longer, to evaluate the called the pre-seed seed, you know, maybe even Series A sort of uh, uh, deals in some cases. Like, I don't think we as ICO investors should be funding white papers. I think you know we should be demanding more of the entrepreneurs. You know, show me a working prototype, show me a proof of concept. You know, at least have a little something. 
you know, uh, not not just a white paper, demonstrate that you as a team can work together long enough to actually get a product shipped. And so I think there's probably still a role for, you know, seed financing, you know, which would be a bridge to an ICO. And so I think there'll still be these small 10, 20, 30, maybe even $50 million firms. But I don't think in the future you need these late stage growth, you know, sort of venture funds that are filling the gap between, you know, the the startup stage and the public company stage. I think that the blockchain technology is just going to lower the bar to a degree that, you know, companies are going to essentially be going public at a much earlier stage, which I think is going to be good for everybody. Again, liquidity uh, for everyone is, is, is a good thing. So let's dig into that a little bit more in terms of like the actual product or technology that you think we're going to be getting built out because of this. Because when we look at Silicon Valley, like they're really good at taking something and scaling it, right? Like they take Facebook and scale it. They take Google and scale it. They take Uber and scale it. And Uber's like, I think their last round was like $60 billion valuation and they're still private and yet the shares are very locked up. So we get a certain type of product out of that particular type of VC model. You're saying that the VC model is going to change. Well, what types of products do you think we're going to get as a result of that change? Well, I mean, the same things that we're getting. You know, I think what you're going to see is there'll be more capital available to more entrepreneurs. I mean, that's the, the, uh, uh, the, the thesis of uh, crowdfunding. You know, and why I've been a fan of crowdfunding by democratizing the space, you're allowing more people to participate in this ecosystem, more people being able to participate means more money being available, more money being available means more entrepreneurs being funded and with a more uh, distributed sort of investor base. So I think, um, you know, net net, that's a, a positive thing for, you know, bringing about innovation. So I think, yeah, the, I mean, the, the Uber model of the world would, could still very well exist in this, you know, vision that I've just painted for you. But instead of it being, you know, two or three venture firms that, you know, captured the lion's share of the value from that, you know, $100 million to $60 billion increase, you know, when the late stage, the really late stage sort of sovereign wealth type funds came in, you know, that could all be people like you and me, you know, uh, that had picked them up. I, you know, I envision the Kraken, you know, sort of exchanges of the future, you know, having 500 startups and protocol tokens running on them. You know, I mean, that's essentially what we're seeing on the Poloniexes today, right? And the Bitrixes today. You know, the question is, you know, how far, you know, does that market just continue to be, you know, use coins and use tokens? Or do they start competing with the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ? And I think that that's what's happening is, you know, NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange and stock markets around the world are competing to get the new hot companies to to launch there. We're lowering the bar because that's what the blockchain sort of technology is doing in this case to make it more accessible and allow companies to do this earlier. And, you know, I think that those industries will converge over time. And these exchanges that, you know, uh, in our industry are going to end up playing really important roles, you know, in terms of the future of how you know, things trade beyond just, you know, the the, the digital tokens for the Ethereums and, and the Bitcoins of the world today. I think it, you end up with thousands of coins and they look like the securities of, you know, the, the entire startup ecosystem, not just of our industry, but all, all industries. So kind of to wrap up the interview, how has Bitcoin blockchain technology, how's it been doing? How's it going to do over the next year or two? Well, obviously, 2013, we had a... a, a a great bull market, which, uh, you know, resulted in us kind of going almost right off a cliff with no skid marks. And we had to, fortunately, we're, we're, we're very, you know, this is a very resilient technology, but, uh, you know, we went into a very 
bear market, uh, certainly for startups. You know, sometimes you don't see that when you're on the funding side, but, you know, generalist VCs stopped investing in the space. We got a little bit of activity in blockchain, but we were in a very bear market for a few years. You know, a lot of companies, you know, uh, failed to survive and, you know, some of them, you know, they trimmed down and fought very hard and, you know, they're benefiting from, you know, this incredible bull market that we're in now. We kicked off this year with, you know, extremely good growth. I think that 2017 is going to be the, the big year of sort of digital currency. You know, I mean, in terms of you know user numbers, we're basically where the internet was in 1990. I think from an infrastructure perspective, we're where the internet was in like 1994, 1995. We've got enough of the basic infrastructure in place, you know, the bridges, the roads, the tunnels, the on-ramps, the off-ramps, you know, around the world that I think that this can be, you know, I think this is going to be the breakout year for digital currency starting to get, you know, Adoption 2013 being a false start, I think this is the first kind of real year where we see meaningful growth, and I think it continues on from here. And then on the blockchain sort of technology side of things where we, you know, the enabling technology that makes Bitcoin possible being used in traditional industry, I think that this is the, the breakout year for that as well. You know, we had banks and financial institutions and big Fortune 5000 companies all over the world experimenting and going through sort of a proof of concept phase. But before you put trillion dollars sort of, you know, industries on top of this technology, you need to test it for a while. And so we've been in a proof of concept phase. And the problem with proof of concepts are they don't pay very well. And so most of these startups have not been generating big revenue. They're not seeing the revenue growth, you know, that get, you know, call it Main Street uh, uh, VCs and Wall Street interested. But I think 2017 is the year that all changes as well. I think this is the year we're moving from proof of concepts to actual pilots and in some cases, commercial, commercialized products. Yeah, and when you start to commercialize these, commercialize these technologies, you start to get you know real revenue, and with that come exits. With that comes you know a ton of capital coming into the market. You know, I couldn't be more I couldn't be more excited about 2017. Obviously, there's still going to be you know a number of false starts and bad news, and probably more hackings and more scaling debates. And you know, it's not all it's not all you know roses, but uh, I could I couldn't be happier about the way that this year has started, and I anticipate it continues with some challenges along the way. Uh, well, I'd you know add my ratification. I think 2017 is going to be another just excellent year for Bitcoin. Uh, it's been wonderful. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. We've had Brock Pierce from Blockchain Capital. Thanks, Brock. Thank you, Trace. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.